0: Welcome back to the second season of the VMP Anthology Podcast. I'm your host Andrew Winnestorfer. In this, our second episode, "Go Mo West, Young Woman," I talk with Susan Weidall about the fourth and fifth albums in our Motown box set, Tammy Terrell's "Irresistible" and Cyrita's "Cyrita." In this episode, Susan and I talk about the sad tragedy of Tammy Terrell and dispel rumors around her death. We also cover how Syrita went from a backup vocalist to making some of the most adventurous R&B on the label in the early 70s, and how Motown's move to LA opened it up to more genres and sounds. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear hints for the final three LPs in this edition of Anthology, which, if you've held off on opening all of them, will be revealed later next week. Though she'd become famous and part of the soul music pantheon thanks to her duets with Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell was signed to Motown as a solo act on her 20th birthday in 1965. Even though she was young, she'd lived multiple lives in the recording industry by then. First as a 15-year-old singing demos for the Shirelles and recording one-off singles, then as a member of James Brown's Soul Review. When her relationship with Brown turned violent, Terrell, who was still going by Tammy Montgomery at the time, quit singing altogether and went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, where she was studying pre-med. A call from Philly soul legend Jerry Butler to go on the road singing with him was too hard for her to pass up. So with the understanding that she'd be able to finish school, Terrell took off on a US tour with Butler. On the Detroit stop, she was seen by Barry Gordy, who signed her more or less on the spot. Gordy had Terrell cut her first single, I Can't Believe You Love Me, shortly thereafter. A last-minute decision that Montgomery was too long of a name for a 7-inch single led to Gordy giving Terrell her new stage name, allegedly chosen at random, but more likely chosen after boxer Ernie Terrell, who had just become famous for becoming the heavyweight champion of the world when Muhammad Ali had to drop his title for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. Terrell's own singles didn't make a huge dent in the charts, but not for lack of trying. In early 1967, Gordy paired Terrell up with Marvin Gaye, who had had a string of hits of duets with Mary Wells and Kim Weston, two talented singers who had left Motown. The first duet Marvin and Tammy cut together was Ain't No Mountain High Enough, a song they recorded separately and which was Frankenstein together in the studio. When the Ashford and Simpson Penn song lit up the radio, it would eventually hit number 20 on Billboard. Gordy had Gay and Terrell head to the studio to record United, a duets LP that would launch multiple hit singles and make both Terrell and Gay into the stars of late 60s Motown. Gay would remember later that he didn't appreciate how great Terrell's voice was until they recorded together. Their relationship as artistic partners would impact him in the years to come. Terrell and Gay were touring behind United pretty heavily when tragedy struck. Terrell, who had migraines for as long as anyone could remember, collapsed on stage while performing with Gay at Hampton-Sydney College. After tests, it was determined that she had a brain tumor. She went back to Detroit for surgery, and when she was well enough, recorded more duets with Gay, and enough material to fill out two more albums. Towards the end of recording for her third album with Gay, Easy, she'd have to sing over Valerie Simpson's reference vocals as she was too sick to rehearse Munch. Terrell would lose her battle with cancer in 1970, a month shy of her 25th birthday. Gay took Tammy's death especially hard. He channeled his sadness into 1971's masterpiece, What's Going On. During repeated surgeries and her cancer treatments, Terrell also recorded enough solo songs to fill out Irresistible, her lone LP as a solo performer. The album features seven previously released singles and four tracks Terrell recorded after her collapse. We chose 1968's Irresistible for Anthology because it is, in some ways, one of the last albums from the old Motown, the version that sat on a street in a house in Detroit. Most of the old guard was on their way out, and the label will be permanently based in L.A. a few short years later. It also represented one of the biggest what-ifs in Motown history. If Terrell's solo career had gotten the time it deserved, she might have been the biggest female star for the label in the early 70s. Though her story is ultimately a tragedy, she triumphed long enough to make an undeniable impact at Motown in just three and a half years. Tammy Terrell is sort of the the biggest what-if, maybe, in the Motown history that, like, If she doesn't, you know, come down with brain cancer, what happens? Because Marvin rode the duets with her to being like this artistically independent, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
0: making masterpieces. What does Tammy do in the early 70s?
1: Right. It could have gone either way. It's she could have gotten lost in the shuffle. It depends. But um, if someone had really taken in her hand one of the. The songwriting teams. She would have been fine. She would have been the next breakout solo star, especially if she hadn't gotten sick when that album. She got sick right before that album really was put together. Mm-hmm. So if she was able to promote it, even while doing the Marvin stuff. I mean, by today's standards, nobody has to quit their regular gig and do when they do solo stuff. You know, back then, they thought you had to do a little bit more, but. It'd be great if she could have done both. Mm-hmm. Both had done both, but I know you know Marvin was into his thing, and his uh, personal life was in a little bit in disarray, and that was all playing into all this. He did not want to move to L.A. Um, she was—it's hard to say because she she was getting sick, and then moved back to Philadelphia um, when at the last part of her illness. But if if um, she'd gone out to L.A. and been well enough and been part of that the label out there uh, it would have been amazing there's just something in her voice it's a perfect foil to Marvin but there's also this excitement in her voice and this emotion and she had that feistiness on stage and you can hear it in her voice that a lot of uh, great singers just never have she she had it so when they uh, when she got the right producer the the results could be amazing and she really
0: kind of brought out the best in Marvin, which is something that he, you know, said a lot throughout the course of the rest of his yeah. life.
1: It's kind of like the the old cliche about um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Like, she brought him sex. She brought him this excitement. Otherwise, he would be this kind of boring, balding dancer. Mm-hmm. Not that Marvin is boring at all, but he was kind of laid back and not a good dancer and, you know, kind of subdued and quiet. And she was the opposite of all that. So... She brought all that stuff out, and uh, Miss Tammy Montgomery from Philadelphia. She was not. She was going to be heard and seen. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, when I was doing my book, um, a woman who used to be a publicist at Motown said that you know, even though Tammy always looked in all of her pictures, she looked so cute and put together and feminine. She said, "Let me tell you, we would go out somewhere. Tammy could take care of herself, and she could take care of me too." Like <laughs> we'd be walking down in this dark alley or something. It's like she was the boss and she could take on anyone who would mess with us. And she taught me a few tricks on how to do that too. <laughs> so I always loved hearing about that. That was fun. And the same thing, you know, um, all the rumors about her that are always flying. Tammy was too feisty to take any sort of abusive situation for very long from everything I, my reporting told me. Mm-hmm. And plus... Um, what she had at the sad um, illness, um, the brain tumor and um, cancer, is, it ran in her family. Her mother had the same problem. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because there's that rumor going that, like, it was David Ruffin being abusive to her that mm-hmm. gave her brain cancer, which doesn't, just, that doesn't it, happen no, that it way. it doesn't happen.
1: Yeah. I interviewed a couple of neurologists and doctors about that. It just doesn't happen. It's So it just won't die. It's one of those... Motown Miss. Yeah. And I think I I read it in like four
0: different Motown history books where they're like, and they basically just like, yeah, this, and I'm like, that doesn't, that, <laughs> I don't know that medical, I'm not a no. doctor, but like the getting hit on the head, should, like, you know, should not give you brain cancer. So no. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't understand what this is, but, um, so yeah, this irresistible, you know, ends up being her only solo record and it was sort of like, just basically like an assemblage of everything mm-hmm. that she had recorded as a solo act.
1: Yeah, some the of end. it dates back to nineteen sixty-five. So, um, but it's a, it it's not jarring. Most of it is a very uh, very uh, professionally done Funk Brothers track, and she doesn't sound different on any of those those songs. So it's a well done mishmash, and uh, yeah, she's got the one song that's a hit. It was a hit mm-hmm. locally, and I played it for a few of my high school buddies because we we graduated from high school in 1970 so we were really in the mix in 1968 69 70 -hmm. and everyone was like oh my god what happened to that song that was a great song Mm -hmm. i said i know i know remember we heard on the radio all the time yeah (laughs) yeah well that's tammy terrell and that was like that was the last first and only solo album
0: Mm -hmm. and the duets albums are sort of the rise of like a woman that's kind of unheralded at Motown is Valerie Simpson. That mm-hmm. like, you know, her and Ashford are writing all of those du- great duets. And it just was interesting to remember that like that's sort of where Ashford and Simpson started their rise was oh. via Tammy Terrell singles. And, and Valerie. You, yeah
1: it, yeah, Valerie, not to take anything away from Tammy's vocals, but Valerie would sing her part. Mm-hmm. She had everything. She was a, almost a control freak in a good way. Um, she had the instrumentation down. She w- did not come in with a vague chart and tell the Funk Brothers, you know, fill it in with what you want. Oh, no. She would say, that's not what I wrote. This is what I wrote and this is what you, wa- you were going to play. So the same thing with um, she had an idea of what she wanted Tammy to do and what she wanted Marvin to do and she would sing the dub, she would sing the, the first version of it herself. So when Tammy got sick later on, she was doing some of that for her when she couldn't make a session. Mm-hmm. But um, again, Joe Messina was saying, I was asking him about an earlier session, and he said, oh, with with the Holland brothers that he, and Lamont Dozier, they would give us a vague sheet. But he he still remembers, he said, that Valerie Simpson, boy. <laughs> She cracked the whip on us. She had us, and he loved her, though. She knew what she was doing, and she said, you're going to do this, this, this. It had all written out, and it was like, wow. She's she's ready. So when you talk about women of Motown, she's way up there, yeah. ¶¶
0: In the late 60s and early 70s, Gordy had the idea of opening a West Coast operation, one that could bring the Motown sensibilities to filmmaking, TV, and Hollywood. This is how the Jackson 5 got a variety show, and how Diana Ross eventually transitioned into acting. Gordy also opened the Mo West label, ostensibly to release R&B records that spoke more to the Cali lifestyle, but which mostly ended up as curios for crate diggers to discover in later years. Gordy shuttered the label in 1973 when he moved the rest of Motown's operations to L.A. But Mo West did have one potential huge star on their roster during the two years it existed. Cyrita Wright, briefly Stevie Wonder's wife, and more substantially, a close musical collaborator. Wright was born in Philadelphia and came into the Motown orbit via Brian Holland of HDH, who noticed her singing and thought she'd be perfect to sing demos of Supreme songs, which she did for a few years. She sang on the demo of Love Child and other Supreme Cuts, and sang back up on Martha and the Vandellas records. She was noticed by Gordy, who shortened her name to Rita Wright, and had her record a debut single that didn't go anywhere in 1968. It was around this time that she met Stevie Wonder, then Motown's Wonderkind, who encouraged her to become a songwriter. they enter into a romantic relationship and be married the next year, but their songwriting relationship started quicker, yielding It's a Shame, a hit by the Spinners. She sang backup on Signed, Sealed, Delivered with Stevie, and they both wrote and recorded material for Where I'm Coming From and Talking Book, Stevie's two breakout solo LPs. In 1970, Cyrita was considered as a replacement for Diana Ross and the Supremes, but instead, she remained solo. Around that time, Wright and Wonder divorced after just 18 months, though they continued to work on music together over the next decade. In 1972, the same year Stevie released Talking Book, Wright released her solo debut, Cyrita, which was produced by Wonder shortly after their divorce. The album represents the airy proto-disco mood of Mo West to a T, but boasts Wonder co-writes on four songs. The most jaw-dropping song on the album, however, is a cover of The Beatles' She's Leaving Home, a layered talkbox masterpiece that reimagines it as an offbeat R&B torch song. morning at five o'clock as the day begins silently closing her bedroom door leaving the note that she hoped would say more she goes downstairs Alright, we can do Syrita now. Mm-hmm. Like a couple of the other women in this box set, she started her career singing backup and doing like session vocals. Mm-hmm. This is another situation like the secretary thing where I don't know of many labels that utilize their roster of just, you know, people like a, like a studio help essentially mm.
1: turning into artists down the line. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that. That's not a bad idea when you think about it, though, because you can really tell who's really got the chops and who can step forward. In the case of Martha, she obviously did. But in the case of Sarita, um, she was Rita at the time. She and um, Stevie had a friendship at first, and he was encouraging her to write. That was extremely important, really almost more important than her singing, because at that point she was singing backup, but it was... She just had such a facility for writing. He could see it, and she wrote several things for him that were just wonderful. So I think that's the the spark, and then they had a personal relationship that blossomed. Mm -hmm. So with his increasing power at Motown, he was able to, okay, she's going to do an album now. Okay, she's going to get to write these songs. Okay, you know, this was right before um, he, he had to take his little hiatus from Motown only lasted what three four months mm-hmm. in order for him to say nope you're gonna let me do it my way mm-hmm. that was 1972 one yeah and uh so they were letting him do stuff just not as quickly as he wanted them to right but sarita was one of the few one of the first and that was a good one he obviously has an eye for talent and uh he uh, she had this sort of um very, very appropriate to the early 70s, this sort of, and and very much in, enmeshed in his sort of worldview too, this sort of ph- philosophical approach to her lyrics. And it was, um, like I said, very much in, in sympathy with his. And mm-hmm. so when she would write for him, it sounded like it was coming from him. And, and vice versa and vice when versa. he was writing for
0: her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's sort of it was sort of like a revelation for me uh when you know reading about this record that the You know, the story of Motown, you hear about, like, Marvin and Stevie are, like, the reason that that got broken open, that, like, they got to make their own music and then everybody after got to, like, have, you know, Rick James got to do his records his way. But she kind of is, like, left out of that because she was also, yeah. I mean, she does this crazy Beatles cover on here. That, like, yeah. you can't imagine that being on a Supremes record or a Tammy Terrell record, you know, that she was given a lot of freedom and took a lot of freedom that i think not many of the artists at motown got to exercise
1: right they were i think you, it took Barry a while to figure out that this was the way things were going and that he better just not try to stop it just see what see where it was going and stevie was the future i've forgotten to what extent he was acknowledged as such but i was looking at the old cream magazine archive last night and uh, on Stevie, in 1972, he just was, 1971, 72, it was, you know, Motown was kind of starting to be seen as old hat at that point. Mm-hmm. But then, boom, he came in with this hybrid of, uh, he was using rock techniques, but black rhythm, black music, and just sort of fusing it and making it this totally new thing. It was, it was making Motown, uh, yet again, the black avant-garde. And that was, um, Sarita was in the same time period, in this early 70s. And then he went off on that incredible run of his mid-70s albums that is unprecedented. That was, so, you know, Motown is, not a lot of labels have two distinct, incredibly creative periods as they did. Mm -hmm. Two or three. Yeah. It was the late 60s with, and the early 70s with The Temptations and Norman Whitfield. Mm-hmm. But then that was sort of calmed down a little bit. And then Stevie comes, boom, out of the box, bringing Sarita with him and others, you know. Because mm-hmm. she's on a lot of backing things of his. and Yeah, she's in that all era. over
0: Talking Book. Yeah. And yeah. And I think, you know, this is one of the f- like handful of albums that came out on Mo West. <laughs> and I wonder sort of what what impact the move to California like allowed Barry to kind of, you know, Open that up a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, especially with Stevie, because um, I mean, much as he loved the Funk Brothers, he was he was already doing a bunch of recording in other cities in New York. And in fact, when I looked at the logs for a lot of these albums, it's like New York, or London. He was all over, because he was like a one-man band half the time. He mm-hmm. didn't he didn't need to be locked into any band. Um, so, yeah, Mo West, he was out there. Um, some of those guys were came from Detroit, but most of them were players out there and people he went into, he, he started working with over the years. It was exciting. The future, it's the West. It's like we're in L.A. now, Mo West. Mm-hmm.
0: But then he shuttered the label. Yeah. I think I think it was like six or seven LPs ever right, got right. released on Mo West and right. I think two of them were Syrita records. But right. um, yeah, it just, yeah, and I think you can sort of see – like Mo West's impact on some of the later stuff in the 70s because mm. they were was really like letting in the like f- more funk the more disco-y like airy kind of like dance music R&B
1: yeah.
0: um, that you know wasn't really present when they were in Detroit necessarily that like right. it's a loosening of the sound kind of right and that's the end of episode 2 in our next and final episode we'll talk about albums 6, 7, and 8 Album 6 is by one of the stars of the 20 Feet from Stardom documentary, a backup singer whose solo LPs are hidden gems. Album 7 was completely self-written and self-produced by the performer, which is a rarity for Motown. The final album was written by the artist after a period of writer's block and is maybe her most underrated LP. This season of VMP Anthology is hosted and written by me, Andrew Winnesdorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder with assistance from Clay Carnell and Jonah Graeber. Listen to more Marvelettes.
1: When I am sad and feeling down, you always call for me when I am sad.